Okay, in this first episode I'm going to talk a bit about pesticides, what they are and how they are regulated and risk assessed in Europe. If you know all about that already, please feel free to hop to roughly the second half of the podcast where I'm going to take a closer look at one particular pesticide. And no, not at glyphosate for once, but at the fungicide chlorothalonil. I'll do that for the simple reason that the compound has been banned just a couple of days ago. So it's an interesting case in point to see how the regulatory system works. In the following, I'll take a decidedly European perspective, uh, simply because the approval process is very specific and is different in different countries around the globe. European-wide laws are called a regulation, and the Regulation on Plant Protection Products defines a pesticide in its Article 2 basically as a chemical intended to protect plants or plant products against all harmful organisms. Typically, pesticides are classified in relation to the target organism. Herbicides, as the name implies, are intended to kill unwanted herbs, so weeds. Fungicides kill fungi and insecticides are intended to kill insects, and so on. Okay, first of all we have to differentiate between a pesticide product and its active ingredient. For example, glyphosate is an active ingredient, a herbicide as you might well know, which is used in a whole range of different products, of which the well-known Roundup is just one out of several dozens. The number of products that use a certain active ingredient depends on whether a particular company has a patent on the compound, in how many crops a particular chemical can be used, whether it can be mixed with other pesticides and combination products, and several other factors, for example marketing reasons in different uh, European countries. A company that wants to sell a pesticide product in Europe has to use an authorized active ingredient, and it has to get the approval for the pesticide product itself afterwards. So we're looking at a two-step procedure. First the approval for the active ingredient, then the approval of the whole product. So let's look first at the active ingredient. That is the chemical that actually does the heavy lifting in a pesticide product. The European Food Safety Authority, EFSA, together with all the member states and the European Commission, evaluates every new active substance before it can be used in a pesticide product. Substances must be proven efficient against the intended target organism, so a company must be able to show that the compound holds up to its promise, and at the same time it must be safe for people's health, which includes an assessment of their residues in food and an assessment of its safety to spray operators, farmers, bystanders and residents. And the compound must be safe for the environment and for animal health. And here we have the main challenge. We are looking at a compound that is intentionally engineered to be as toxic as possible against its target organism. Except when we are looking at certain speciality pesticides like for example growth promoters. At the same time, the pesticide should be basically non-toxic for everybody and everything else. So a non-toxic poison. Obviously, that never fully works, so there will always be side effects, which is very similar to medicines where we also accept side effects in order to get the benefit of, for example, a painkiller or an anti-cancer drug. Anyway, the process for the authorization works as follows. A company or a group of companies that wants to put a compound on the market applies to the responsible authority of a European country. This country then becomes the so-called rapporteur member state. 
It prepares the draft assessment report on the basis of the industry-submitted data, which is always a matter of debate given the inherent conflict of interest there. In any case, the report in the end is really extensive, comprising easily a couple of thousand pages. The report analyzes, or is supposed to analyze, all the relevant issues such as efficacy, toxicology, ecotoxicology, chemical analytical methods to measure the compound, degradation products in the environment, and so on. The reporting member state then forwards the report to the European Food Safety Authority, which then distributes it to all the European member states. They all can submit comments to the report, which are discussed with EFSA and with the company, which in the end might actually need to provide additional information. In the end, EFSA writes a report, a so-called EFSA opinion, which is finalized in discussion with the member states and then published and sent over to a committee of the European Commission, the Committee on Plants, Animals, Food and Feed. This committee comprises representatives of each member state and then votes on approval or non-approval of the pesticide, a decision which is then adopted by the European Commission. So, yes, certainly not the simplest process. But what I would like to emphasize here is that the different European countries are the ones that in the end vote on the approval or non-approval. So, yes, not the simplest process, but I would like to emphasize that the different European countries are the ones that in the end vote on the approval or non-approval of the active ingredient. Unfortunately, the final discussion in the committee takes place behind closed doors and only the final vote is made public. Pesticides get an approval for a maximum of 10 years. There are some exceptions with a shorter approval period, but Nevertheless, that means that pesticides are reassessed in the light of new data and perhaps even new laws at least every 10 years. And that is just the active ingredient. If a company actually wants to market a pesticide product containing the active ingredient, it has to apply for a permit also for the full product. I'll skip the details here for now, but I can assure you that this process is by no means less complicated. Okay, I hope you're still with me. The process does not only sound complex, it is. In fact, I have been just barely scratching the surface, but I hope you get the general idea. In a nutshell, we have a two-tiered system with a European-wide approval system for the active ingredient and an approval system for the final pesticide product uh, that contains that active ingredient to be used in a certain crop. Given the absolutely toxic discussion about glyphosate and the almost similarly intense debate about neonicotinoid insecticides, the whole process is currently assessed from various stakeholders, including the European Parliament, the European uh, Chief Scientific Advisors, academics and various NGOs. And I'll try to summarize that discussion in a future episode of the podcast. Okay, for now let's talk about chlorothalonil, which is a fungicide. That is, the compound is used against fungal infections in plants. To be more precise, chlorothalonil is used as a so-called non-systemic foliar fungicide, which means that it has to be sprayed directly on the leaf of the plant and it inhibits the fungal germination there. So for the best disease control, the compound must be present on the plant prior to the onset of infection. And that leads to an interesting challenge because the crop has to be sprayed before an infection takes place, so prophylactically. 
The application can be either completely unnecessary or it could have been absolutely crucial to prevent an oncoming infection. And that is something that one only knows in hindsight. Other fungicides, for example those from the so-called triazole family, can also be applied when the infection already has started. So that's an advantage of that group of chemicals. Chlorothalonil is the active ingredient in a lot of different fungicidal products. Bravo from Syngenta might be the most well-known product. The European member states have just voted to ban the future use of that chemical and all the products uh, that contain that chemical in Europe. Rumor has it that uh, in the end only Hungary, the UK, Lithuania and Greece have actually voted against the proposal to ban the compound. All other European countries were in favor of banning chlorothalonil from the European market. Remember the reporting member state? In the case of chlorothalonil, we are actually looking at a reauthorization and the responsible country for evaluating the data was the Netherlands, supported by Belgium as the co-rapporteur member state. The joint applicants for the authorization were Arista Life Science, Oxon Italia and Syngenta. And Syngenta took the lead of the resulting so-called chlorothalonil task force. The basis for refusing the renewal of the market authorization is the risk assessment report that has been published by EFSA on the basis of the evaluation from the Netherlands. I'll provide the link in the description to this episode. The representative uses that were evaluated were spray applications in wheat, barley, tomato and potato against a whole range of different fungal pathogens. And First and foremost, when going through the risk assessment report, I was really surprised. In the end, EFSA lists a whopping 35 data gaps in the submitted documentation. Just one example, the report, the EFSA report states that a data gap was identified for a transparent presentation and evaluation of the search of the scientific peer-reviewed open literature on the active substance and its relevant metabolites. So the chlorothalonil task force comprising experienced pesticide companies were actually not able to even summarize and evaluate the scientific literature. And I find that really strange. On the other hand, it reminds me of a discussion that I just had a couple of days ago with a colleague actually working in chemical industry who claimed that industry dossiers are always top-notch, complete and reliable. Well, this particular dossier seems to show the opposite. Chlorothalonil has a very low toxicity when taken up via oral or dermal exposure pathways. But it's very toxic when inhaled. And as a result, EFSA concluded that the acceptable operator exposure, so the safe exposure at the workplace for a farmer or a spray operator, is often exceeded, even if personal protective equipment is worn. The main target organ of chlorothalonil upon short and long-term exposures in uh, studies with rats and mice are the kidneys and the compound seems to be causing tumors in the kidneys. As a result, the majority of experts from EFSA and the various European countries concluded that the compound should be classified into the category 1b for carcinogenicity, which means the compound may cause cancer. The Netherlands maintained the opinion that a category 2 classification should be sufficient, which is one level lower. 
And that is an absolutely crucial distinction, simply because compounds in category 1b are not allowed to be used, at least not within Europe. Additionally, also the metabolites of chlorothalonil might be genotoxic according to EFSA's data summary. And with respect to the environment, EFSA concluded that the suggested use of chlorothalonil puts fish as well as amphibians at a substantial risk. The studies on the toxicity to honeybees were at least partially lacking, so no firm conclusions were drawn there. So all in all, for me, a quite clear picture. We have a compound for which we do know far less than what we actually want to know, and for which the available data clearly indicates substantial reason for concern for humans and the environment alike. And in view of these findings, just take the following comment. We feel the Commission has been overly precautionary in making this decision and has failed to consider the particular importance of this active in the control of critical fungal diseases and in managing disease resistance. As a result, we believe sectors of the United Kingdom agricultural and horticultural production will be put at significant risk. That is a quote from a senior regulatory affairs advisor at the National Farmers Union in the United Kingdom. As much as I can understand that farmers might not like to lose a perfectly well-working fungicide with, uh, with whom they might have a lot of experience and which actually gets the job done, I still don't really understand why somebody would argue that it's overly precautionary to not allow somebody to spray a likely carcinogen into the open landscape. Not to mention that it's highly problematic for fish and amphibians. And not to mention that the farmer him or herself would be the most heavily exposed person. If a ban is put into force now, there is usually a roughly six-month grace period for sales and distribution and then a roughly 12-month use-up period, although these timescales vary and they are not decided yet for chlorothalonil. But this grace period will in particular help newer fungicides to fill the gaps that chlorothalonil will leave behind. So, in the end, for me, this could develop into a really nice example of how good regulation that aims to protect human health and the environment actually supports innovative developments within the agrochemical industry and within farming, to all our benefits. And as a final note, just because I simply cannot resist the temptation, should the UK indeed leave the European Union now, they are obviously free to treat their crops with any chemical they like. Whether they can then still sell their agricultural products to the rest of Europe, that's a different question. Okay, that's it for now. Thank you all for listening and as usual, get in touch if you have comments or questions. Talk to you later.